Hello and welcome to the City Centric Podcast from Centric Lab, a show where we have conversations on health, justice and cities. But before we get into talking about today's guest, I just want to make a small announcement. We're changing things up at Centric a little bit. We're now dedicating ourselves to research and policy-based work on reducing biological inequality in urbanised places around the world. As such, we've chosen to run as a non-profit. We're going to be producing more research, more podcasts, more events and workshops, and have set up a Patreon account for people to access these outputs by supporting our science team. We've also set up a corporate membership scheme. This information can be found on our website at thecentricclub.com, and we hope that some of you become Patreon members, helping to support our scientists produce the intersectional health research on inequality and cities that's needed to impact the health crises our societies continue to develop. Thank you. And now on to today's show. So in this episode, we talk with Carl Brooks, who is a UK Director of Sustainability at the global real estate services firm CBRE. Carl's uh, higher education started actually in environmental psychology. And when we started producing work for a firm he was at previously, we seemed to have grabbed his attention in being able to use some more advanced science to help solve some of the historic problems uh, with how people use commercial buildings. Um, And we've kept in touch for a good few years. And we've recently done some work with him today uh, well recently and uh, we talk about it on this show um, and our conversation focuses more on the impact of environmental social and corporate governance and what this is meaning to how large commercial real estate assets and portfolios are managed given the impending climate crisis and rising concerns on health so esg refers to the three central factors in measuring the sustainability and societal impact of an investment in a company or business uh, these criteria help to better determine the future financial performance of companies. Now, there's a long way to go with ESG, and it has its critics, and everything should be constructively criticised, but it's also a hugely effective tool at getting some change to happen. Anyway, let's get on and let Carl speak more about that, and please do enjoy the show. Great, Carl. Well, instead of me uh, giving a terrible introduction, could you explain a little bit more who you are, how you got into doing what you're doing, and a little bit about the company that you work at? Sure. Yep. So, um, hello. Um, my name is Carl Brooks, um, and I am head of sustainability for property management in the UK at CBRE, who are a global property company. Um, I've been working within sustainability for twenty years or so. Um, it was my it was my it was my university degree. It's always been my interest, and it was always something that I wanted to get into. Um, and I've been working within the real estate sector for the last. 13 years um, initially at Hammerson, who are um, a developer of retail property, um, looking after all of the environmental management for their UK schemes, before moving across into property management, working with a range of institutional investors um, and private clients to manage um, a whole range of commercial real estate assets um, with a view um, and an aim to kind of improve the, the um, sustainability of individual assets and the sector as a whole. Um, I'm also active in the industry. Um, I, I chair the Managing Agents Partnership for the Better Buildings Partnership with a key focus on sustainability and work with Revo on the retail side and the BCO on the office side um, on their respective um, ESG group. So, you know, try and have a, you know, like a broad industry experience that I can bring to my day job with, within CBRE. No, it's great. And uh, following you on social media, you do talk a lot uh, in a good way about all sorts of novel green solutions. It, is, it does seem to be a, a personal journey for you as much as a professional one. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, 
I think I'm in some ways sort of uniquely placed where, you know, I am a sustainability professional first and foremost, and this is, you know, exactly what I wanted to do as opposed to being a, you know, a sort of property person that's kind of been seconded on, on to this. And, you know, as far as I can, you know, whilst kind of maintaining, you know, a certain you know, degree of diplomacy within my, my role in my sector, it's around just kind of making sure people are aware of what the real issues are and, and, and what's at stake if we don't act um, sufficiently to um, achieve a sustainable future. So, yeah, I try and put that out into my LinkedIn feed as much as I can. No, it's great. I pick up a lot of content for it and say it's good. But um, you mentioned ESG, which is the sort of macro umbrella for um, environmental, social and governance uh, sort of agendas to which large organisations and corporations endeavour to work towards to demonstrate their commitment to those three initiatives to help drive a more uh, socially just uh, economy and society. And that's really where we started speaking, I mean, I think about three years ago uh, when you were elsewhere and we continued to speak. Um, and so maybe if I can ask you to expand a little bit more about that for people who may not be familiar with the real estate industry. And really the, the question is like, how are you seeing the ESG agenda impact decision making on existing real estate? So I'm more interested in the already built assets given that what's the stat by we already have 75% of the buildings that will be around in 2050. So it's it's looking at what we've already got. So very keen to understand how the ESG agenda is influencing um, the type of work that you're doing and you're seeing within uh, real estate. Yeah, I mean, I think I think amongst our clients, it kind of varies you know, hugely in terms of the impact that ESG is having. Um, it's, it's absolutely one of the factors that's involved in the kind of um, decision-making process within the sector. Um, from my perspective, from a purist perspective, I guess, um, it probably isn't playing as quite a central role as it should be um, and is often, you know, the kind of like degree of, of, of uptake um, and interest in the subject is largely sort of driven by the values of the organisation who is you know, making, making that decision. Um, but I mean, really, you know, we do need to sort of you know, move that further up. So it's being considered um, against the context of, of, of the need to take it more seriously across the board. Um, there's absolutely been a rising interest in this. I mean, like I said at the top um, in in the intro, we've been I've been working on this for 20 years, um, and it has at times felt like a bit of a, a thankless kind of fight. You know, sort of talking to you know, people who are largely interested in economic sustainability beyond anything else. But I think what we've seen in the last two years, particularly, um, is a kind of like a, a rapid rise up the agenda. So you know. Pretty much all of our clients now are talking about this, even if it's a case of having to consider it in in some small way, as opposed to it being a sort of key driver of of, of them. Um, and you know, that's largely to do with you know all the things we're familiar with around you know the rising awareness about the climate crisis, um, adoption of net zero carbon policies nationally and corporately, um, you know, specific issues based things around single use plastic or you know the blue planet effect, as as it's often sort of referred to. Um, but also increasingly around the sort of you know the kind of S of ESG um, around the needs of real estate assets and company policies to pay more attention to um, health and well-being aspects um, and the health and well-being of the building users um, and and our own employees ultimately. Um, and you know, really, there's there's a double kind of goal here: a around improving kind of ESG performance, but also ultimately using some certain improvements that you know, will ultimately lead to improved productivity amongst workforce. You know, a healthier, happier workforce is going to be a more productive workforce. So there are definite kind of economic angles to to this. Um, I think just kind of 
finally on that question, I guess for me is like, you know, what, what I've found really interesting, particularly moving into, into CBRE, which is obviously a much you know, bigger business with lots of different, you know, kind of work, work streams involved in property is where we're seeing a real increase in the number of um, questions and inquiries from our investment teams and our valuations teams who are actively seeking to understand more about ESG. You know, they're very kind of aware that it's not an area that they are totally okay with yet, but it's one they are hearing more in their own sort of um, bubbles um, for once the a COVID term and a non-COVID um, kind of setting there, um, which really is a sign, hopefully, that we've kind of reached a tipping point now where, where sort of, you know, economically focused parts of the industry are starting to understand that ESG is going to really kind of affect the performance of their, of their sectors going forwards. And you know, really, while, while I guess at the moment the evidence isn't hugely strong right now that ESG performance um, is influencing real estate values here and now, I think we're at the point where we will start to kind of see decision-making being meaningfully influenced by performance against those metrics and future asset values being you know, very much kind of, you know, sort of pegged to how sustainable or how, um, you know, yeah, how, how unsustainable those kind of asset owners are. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting with ESG that perhaps it's not necessarily an immediate revenue stream where a lot of the industry, which is very capital-based, you know, it is moving money around through vehicles and to, to generate a capital-based return. Like that, that is essentially the real estate slash built environment industry. But ESG, if we look at it much more from a social lens and not necessarily the social within the ESG, but a societal lens, that it's almost more of a risk mitigation tool. Like it's, it's more of a business uh, risk mitigation tool in the fact that the, the better quality your ESG performance, the, it decreases your potential risk against uh, public opinion or sudden changes in law. And I think that's how um, I'm hoping more and more organizations see it, that actually it is um, saving for their future rather than gaining in the present, if that makes sense. I don't know if, if perhaps that's seen or discussed more internally that people are aware that they need to do it, but they can't quantify it. And perhaps it's more, well, we better do this because at the end of the day, if we're not up in this, we may face a risk in the future. Do you think that's a fair statement to say? Yeah, absolutely fair. And, and you know, uh, you know for, for a long time now, you know, there's, there's, there's been growing kind of evidence that you know, companies that take ESG seriously, um, you know, are just generally it's, it's a kind of sign of a much better approach to management more generally you know if, if if you're absolutely nailing your kind of like traditional business kind of areas you 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 have the freedom and the time and the bandwidth to then look at how you can enhance your your kind of management and operations and i think esg is a kind of indicator of that so you know a, a strong kind of esg approach is indicative of a, just a good general management approach um so i think what we're finding and Yes, there's been surveys published through the lockdown period where companies that have kind of you know, good ESG um, policies are actually outperforming you know, companies that 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 perhaps don't um, investment in kind of you know, green bonds and stocks and you know, kind of companies with you know, good ESG policies are seen as being a much safer long term bet. So it really is starting to kind of cross that kind of you know kind of tipping point around being a sort of nice to have to being actually a real indicator of long term success particularly in property, you know, like a lot of our clients, they hold investments in pension funds who are, you know, completely reliant on, you know, um, returns over a much longer horizon than the traditional sort of, you know, you know, kind of average hold of a, of a piece of real estate of about seven years or so. They're looking out to maybe 50 years. So, they're, they're, they're having to kind of you know, ensure that their management reflects that over, over, over the long term. And ESG is absolutely all about that. 
Awesome. Uh, I want to track back into discussing sort of retrofitting because mm. obviously with the climate crisis, I mean, I'm sure you'll hate this analogy, but there is a joke that the most sustainable building is the one that hasn't been built yet. Because the idea that there is, um, you know, when you create a new build, um, mostly we're, we're probably mostly talking about office buildings and big, large retail assets in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you introduce a large new office building to an urban environment, the embodied carbon uh, from that development may take 20, 30, 40, even up to 75 years, uh, depending on the asset and, and how it's organized for the operational factor of its sustainability to kind of meet it being a carbon negative building in this way. So there, you know, whilst it's great to deliver new buildings and have them run efficiently, actually there, there is an argument to say, well, what do we do with what we've already got? What is the smartest way to retrofit? Because if we, you know, we, we also have to uh, parry up the the embodied carbon conversation as well with the sort of operational carbon emissions and something that obviously we're looking at centric is when you know there's almost like Darwinian look at cities where you have the uh, large construction taking place in a central business district but there is a question of where did those lorries come from transporting all those uh, materials they're often driving through residential neighborhoods or past areas and the things like um, air pollution seeping off into you know neighborhoods with children etc so this is a question of retrofitting first Um, and I know that's something that you look into and it's a big part of what you do because retrofitting can be more cost effective but do you think enough attention in the in the conversation of sustainability in the real estate market is actually talking about retrofitting or is there too much excitement around sustainability on new builds yeah, this is the perfect question for me, Josh. I mean, this has been like a real sort of bugbear of mine for, for years as a practitioner, and you know, particularly in industry groups, like I say, where so much focus is given on new builds. And, you know, I think me as sort of token sort of property manager representative in the room is always kind of like looking at, you know, look, you know the operational phase is absolutely key. Buildings should be designed with operations in mind. Um, and, and then operations should be able to then kind of like deliver sort of the management of those buildings in a really effective way. Um, I've been doing as best I can to ensure that those conversations are are happening and 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 we are talking about sustainable real estate in the context of retrofit and refurbishment you know um it is challenging you know the fact is that it's you know it's often well it's harder it's often more expensive and you know to kind of look at retrofit and refurb as opposed to to you know looking at the sort of sexy subject of the art of the possible when it comes to designing buildings from scratch um you know every kind of you know pretty much every land you know, benchmark sort of case study of a sustainable building is of a nice kind of shiny sort of glass and steel sort of you know, construction somewhere with you know, dripping in smart tech and that's great um but ultimately, it's existing stock that's going to determine whether or not the sector achieves its sustainability ambitions. As, as you mentioned, you know, 70% of the buildings today um, will still be around in 2050, and half of those were built before 1970. Um, you know, the majority of what's left were built in the 1980s and 1990s, which you know, really saw an explosion um, in, in the kind of commercial sort of sector and the, and the efficient construction of you know, what are pretty inefficient buildings. Um, so tackling the issues of um, sustainability here is going to be really where the battle is, is kind of won and lost. Um, not claiming um, full sort of, you know, 
um, kind of plaudits for you know for it. But you know that there are signs that the industry is starting to look at um, existing stock in a bit more in a bit more detail. And I think one area that of, of work that I'm involved with through the Better Buildings Partnership has kind of grown out of their their design for performance project, which obviously is focused on on new new developments. But that was developed really having looked at the success of the Neighbours scheme in Australia. Um, of closing the performance gap between building design and operation, um, it's, it, it's been a it, it's been a sort of clarion cry of Verco for a long time, who worked with the BBP to develop the design for performance initiative. And now there's a you know whole host of case studies of BBP members who are putting forward um, developments to be assessed against the DFP standards. Um, but through the Managing Agents Partnership, we are sort of in early conversations about developing an operational equivalent of that, um, nominally called Managing for Performance. Um, which for me um, is, is around providing the means to assess the design potential of existing assets. So we inherit an asset, we can we can use the MFP process to assess what that building could be performing at. We can analyze the operational data, work out what that gap is, and then look at what we can do to close that gap um, before we then look beyond that towards, you know, kind of um, helping you know, ensure that building is part of the sort of net zero solution, if it can be at all. Um, and then we can have discussions around, you know, do we, you know, um, completely repurpose that building because you know as, as you said with the embodied carbon issue we don't want to just be pulling buildings down and building building new ones in their place you know it might be that you know we can use that building in a different way and we are kind of seeing you know sort of um, commercial buildings being converted into into residential for example or kind of retail property being converted into leisure or whatever it might be um so that 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 flexibility and innovation is going to be absolutely essential more essential for existing stock um, as as it's, as it's going to continue to be for for new builds are there any particular products or solutions or even technologies that you've picked up that you think are uh, very interesting and quite progressive at the moment um, no, I mean, I, I think for me, one one area that that we have been looking at in in a, a lot of detail, and I think it's going to really sort of come into its own in the sort of post pandemic world, is is the the kind of ability to monitor the kind of internal conditions of a building, and then implement sort of smart building controls that then can regulate the internal conditions against a kind of required air quality standard, for example. So while while, while we're looking at kind of improving efficiency of kind of um, um, air, air handling plant, heating and cooling and such like, you know, it needs to be done in a smart way. So, you know, much of the advice now, for example, you know, is that we need to be flooding fresh air through the buildings all the time. So control strategies which are based on, on um, Operate, you know, only operating when it's felt they're needed. You know, in order to sort of like save, you know, save a few grams of carbon here and there, they're now being turned on their head by having to, you know, run sort of fans twenty four seven to make sure there's always fresh airflow going in. Well, actually, if we're able to monitor the internal conditions of a building, we can actually regulate how we use that um, ventilation equipment. To, to better maintain that internal environment and have the carbon reduction objectives met as well, as opposed to having to trade off energy efficiency with public health. Mm. 
Excellent. That kind of brings us on to uh, the piece of work that we did together, and we won't give away mm. too much because obviously it's your your intellectual property. But um, you know, you asked us uh, a very pertinent question, um, you know, related to institutional clients. That um, you know, the history being that in the early nineties in the United States, the um, I believe the term is the Disability Act was introduced, whereby um, a physical ramp was introduced to the entrances of major buildings, um, in order to allow people with different abilities to access um, with dignity, basically. And uh, that was very much looking at physical differences. But obviously, we also live in a world where people have many um, uh, mental differences. And you asked us that question of, well, you know, given what we've got, how do we start thinking about our buildings from these perspectives? And what can we do within our property management realm? And, um, you know, I just very you know we, we provided a sort of a, a top line review on everything from uh, you know an urban experience from a person who is perhaps neurodiverse and their sensitivity to urban stresses um, you know navigating a central business district could be more fatiguing so you ask these questions well what is the most effective way to elevate their health and elevate their experience and actually their sustained experience in a building or their overall recognition and how they enjoy with the building um, but you know, um, Aricelli, who's not uh, on the podcast today, uh, did want to really ask the question, like, what do you feel you kind of uh, most learned from that with with the lens of what you've just said around monitoring indoor space? Are there any sort of novel solutions or insights uh, that you feel is going to improve the conversation with your uh, large clients? Yeah, I mean, the whole project, to be honest, was really kind of interesting. And 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 it, it sort of ended up in a very sort of, you know, a really good place um, in terms of what the outcomes were. But they weren't necessarily what my preconceptions of what the outcomes might be would have been. Um, you know, I think what really kind of sparked it for me was attending one of the Future Cities catapults, which um, Aricelli was, was kind of speaking at. And, uh, and there was a video that she played there around how... Um, somebody with autism navigates their way around a town, and and that that really kind of got got me thinking. You know, based on my own experience as somebody who who who, who isn't neurodiverse, I guess, in like the extent that, that that we all are to a degree, I suppose. Um, sometimes you arrive in a building and it's quite disorientating as to where you're meant to go. You know, and I think from a design point of view, that's probably sort of designed to try and kind of do away with the sort of, you know, the reception desk and it's all very formal and all the rest of it to make it a bit more kind of free flowing. But if you're, if you're going to a building for the first time, that can be quite disorientating as to what you're meant to do and, and where you're meant to go. So for me, it was very much, I was kind of expecting there to be a lot of, um, sort of insights into into the kind of types and locations and positions and and you know of, of kind of signage and wayfinding you know sort of you know using pictures as opposed to words and or having a more of a sort of a, a kind of hospitality approach to the kind of meet and greet and sort of be you know so that that, that, that was kind of in my mind where where we went to and and you know and what what's kind of fascinating for me from the research was you know somebody with a, a a kind of environmental science and sort of biology background myself was just kind of talking about the interdependencies between our our environments and the and the, and the effect those environments have on us as individuals um it's always been a fascinating kind of area for for me and there's always been that sort of you know that kind of that underlying understanding that when you're in the woods or when you're by the coast or when you're in, in fields, you feel different to how you feel when you're walking down the street in London or standing on Oxford Circus in, in, you know, over, over your lunch hour. Um, and, 
it was kind of interesting for me to understand based on the work that Arichelli was doing on this project, how those stresses really affect all of us, but how those effects are greatly amplified if you're already suffering with a, a condition, whether it's a kind of like a, you know, a mental health condition or a neurodiverse condition, how, how those kind of stresses can actually almost, you know, make, make those individuals um, completely unable to function effectively. Um, and and that that was a really interesting outcome for me and and anything we can do to improve the experience of our building users to try and kind of offset some of the the sort of um the kind of damage that's been done either through their their domestic situations or in their commute or just in in the journey that they've taken to get to the office is just a way of of kind of you know working with their physiologies to basically you know reduce that allostatic load and 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 kind of enable them to to kind of function better and ultimately as i said earlier that's going to help them be more productive at work and you start to kind of like join all these dots and your synapses start firing as to exactly okay well maybe that's why this happens at certain times of the day or maybe when i go out for a walk at lunchtime it's probably the worst thing in the world to do because there's very little green space around the office where 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 I am so you're walking down an urban environment probably arriving back at the office far more stressed than you were when you left in the first place um so I think that says something about urban realm design as well and there's much bigger issues around around that um and you know so yeah there, there's there are so many avenues that we're going to explore off the back of the research you've done for us and I'm really excited to kind of see how how we can use that to improve our our service across the board no, that's great. Uh, we're happy, you know, you really did actually pick up on a number of things there. So uh, well uh, regurgitated in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think what's interesting, and, um, you know, when we're talking about ESG and something that, uh, you know, Centric are trying to champion, and we're just launching a new, um, what we'll call an Urban Health Council, which I'll send you some information on, and uh, other people can also see it on our website. But it's the conversation around, well, it's it, it, to pose the question that if a person arrives at a building in a in a sort of worse state than you would want them to um, because they need to either perform. So imagine there's a doctor coming into work um, and you don't, you don't want a doctor stressed out. You don't want a doctor fatigued who's about to cut you open with a surgery knife. Nor, nor do you want a lawyer who is uh, stressed out and fatigued and exhausted and can't concentrate, who's reading over a very, very difficult, whether it be a divorce uh, agreement or a merger and acquisition, um, but you know, to be a general worker as well, that there is a question that when the outside starts to influence the inside a lot more, you have to start questioning well does the owner of the inside need to have better influence on the outside and from a positive point of view and i do wonder whether we'll see in some in some cities um a more effective um i don't want to say tax i want to say a, a better agreement in which private actors start to engage more with the urban design and the urban realm given its influence on what happens in their buildings um and i think that's one of the key things that we often work at and i think yeah where a lot of your um questioning started which was you know do we need to adjust our buildings based on the journey from which a person has come? And the argument is yes. Um, the piece of work that we we did together uh, took a particular route, but there are many ways to look at it. But one of the key things we wanted to really get across um, was the idea that health is ecological, that it's not just straight, you know, or give, mm-hmm. give someone a bowl of fruit or give them a health app and they'll be fine. We have to look at uh, health being from a bottom-up perspective, and that's really looking at all the, you know, a day-in-the-life experience and that 
that concept and looking at all the nudges that you can effectively introduce within your agency as a, as a provider or provider of space and start to work upwards. And I think that's a very healthy way that um, I hope that asset owners can start to do more uh, through the, the great work that you guys are introducing to them. So like a, a last question that um, it can probably be quite a simple one, um, but in the conversation of sort of consumer or just, you know, end user health, um, if we look across the real estate industry with all of its asset classes of from residential to hospitality, office, industrial, is there a particular sector that you feel is um, far more advanced than the others? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, I mean, from from what we're seeing, there's 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 certainly. Uh, the kind of main interest is coming from the kind of prime city center offices and and it's, and it's, and it's often those sites where you're kind of pushing against a, a slightly ajar door if not a fully open door when it comes to having, having these discussions and you know i think just generally there's an appetite to look at these kind of issues at those um, buildings for a number of reasons. I mean, there's there's they're often in in very competitive locations, so they look so the owners are looking to encourage differentiation. You know, looking you know look at what are going to be additional pull factors to the office over the street, which is arguably just as good. So, how can we differentiate our offer? Um, there's increasing demand among certain occupier organizations. You know, so, you know, some of those sites tend to kind of attract, you know, kind of much larger global companies who maybe have their own sort of um, um, approaches or thoughts on health and well-being and sustainability. So they're looking for for kind of buildings that can that can help them deliver their own internal objectives. Um, often those buildings are, uh, are owned by property owners who have their own sustainability requirements, you know, and these, these might be direct requirements themselves <clears throat> or driven by um, requirements of their investors or looking to attract more investment through kind of like, you know, kind of criteria being available for kind of promoting health and well-being, you know, for, for, you know, for, for example. So, you know, I, I, I think for, you know, in some ways, that's one sector which is really sort of, you know, um, easy to kind of engage with these issues on. But the other asset class, you know, I, I think is absolutely worth kind of mentioning and it really kind of speaks to, you know, some of the things you were saying there would be the kind of campus style business parks um, who's, you know, really, you know, their kind of key point of difference is they're not in cities. Um, they're in much kind of like larger edge of edge of town kind of locations, um, which has a huge benefit from a health perspective because there's, you know, it, it changes the, the dynamic of the commute. It changes the environment. You know, there's a lot more outdoor space. There's often a lot more, landscaping um, that kind of promote the adoption of healthier lifestyles. Um, it provides opportunities for nature connection, all of which are great for our, you know, our kind of, you know, management of our physiology. Um, and you know, I've been saying for, you know, a long, you know, long time now that I think those assets are likely to become increasingly popular, um, particularly as people maybe look to sort of, you know, kind of restructure their, their, their kind of portfolios and where they, where they base certain functions. Um, so I, you know, I think those kinds of, those kinds of assets have a really, good opportunity to to kind of promote themselves as being sort of you know almost like you know, quite quite restorative environments for their employees particularly if you're in you know jobs which rely on you being at your desk for you know seven eight hours a day you 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 want your breaks to be useful you want to be able to go out and walk in the sunshine next to a, like a, a lake or a stream or a pond or whatever it might be or have kind of meeting pods completely surrounded by you know, kind of greenery and and whatever to have that break from the open plan office experience. So I think you know I, I think those are the two asset classes for me, which you know really um, are showing an interest and have real opportunity. 
Brilliant. Carl, thank you very much. If, uh, if people do want to read more about some of what you're doing or get in touch, where would you want to direct them to a, a Twitter account or a website for anything? Oh gosh. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, by all means kind of, um, drop me a note on LinkedIn or, or, or like, um, have, have a look there or just contact us at, um, you know, contact me at CBRE. So yeah, please do. That's all good. Carl, thanks very much for your time. No worries. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank you to Carl for his time. If you want to reach him, he can be found sharing great insights on ecological solutions to sustainability problems on LinkedIn. That's Carl Brooks, C-A-R-L-B-R-O-O-K-S. And check out the Better Buildings Partnerships if you're so inclined. Uh, please do leave us a review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you've heard us. Um, it would really help. And please do support our scientists via patreon.com slash centriclab. Thanks very much and speak to you guys soon.